Good evening, welcome, welcome to class number 10, the Dracula Q&A class. A uh, bunch of really great questions to answer tonight. Thanks to everybody who sent in questions by email and uh, got a few by Twitter yesterday. Uh, so uh, so that was really good. So I'm gonna uh, hope to get through, I have 12. I hope to get through as many of the 12 as I can compared with the streak I've been on with, uh, uh, with slides. 12 seems like a mere nothing, but we'll see. We'll see how I actually do. Um, I wanted to add, as we go through the class today, um, don't forget that uh, we have... Um, uh, you can add topics if you want to throw out something uh, tonight. Uh, those of you who are attending live, um, go ahead and... Um, go ahead and, and uh, post that to the questions box um, in order to differentiate so I can scan and see uh, people who are asking whole new questions or wanting to raise an entirely different topic. Um, uh, those of you who have done this with me before will be familiar with this convention, but start your comment with the word TOPIC in all caps so that I can see it quickly as I scan through the list. So if you have a, a wholly new question that you want me to, uh, to, to do, I'll try to see how many extras I can throw in there too. Um, but oh yeah, James, I, uh, I saw that on Twitter earlier today. Somebody else posted that. Yeah, that uh, uh, Wikipedia says that Dracula was published on May 26th, 1897. Uh, so we, we are we are very close tomorrow. Uh, in fact, if, uh, if we hang around for long enough this evening, we might make uh, the anniversary. So that would be, uh, what, 119 years? Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, very cool. That's right, James, Yana's already there. So Yana is celebrating uh, 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 the 119th anniversary of the publication uh, of Dracula, and frankly, of course, since it was published in England, uh, I suppose, you know, we can kind of count it, right? It's officially exactly, Mark. They've already made it there in the UK. Uh, so we'll see. Before we get started, though, just wanted to remind you, um, especially now that we're done reading the book, you know, there are movies to be watched, but that's not, you know, that onerous a task. So uh, while you have no assigned reading to do, I just wanted to remind you, uh, it's lost road time, right? Next class, still got a while, right? It's a pretty thick book, some dense bits in here, um, but um, but it's gonna be it's gonna be a lot of fun. I've been so looking forward to doing the Numenor stuff uh, ever since we did the Shaping of Middle Earth class, which I mean, the Shaping of Middle Earth class was one of my favorite Mythgard Academy classes ever. That was so much fun. Um, so uh, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, ever since then especially, I am super psyched, hoping that we would get our chance to, uh, to, to, to continue through. So, um, all right, anyway, so just a reminder, Lost Road, get reading. Um, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're gonna do that. Um, yeah, so Jennifer, great question, and I'm sure many people have this question. If you haven't read any of the earlier of the History of Middle-Earth stuff, should you still enroll for the next class? Yeah, sure, absolutely. I mean, we're going to be doing some review. There will be some stuff that, I, I mean, you will certainly, I'll be referring to things that we talked about or looked at earlier on. Of course, you can always go go through all of the other courses are there on YouTube. Um, Many of you, I don't know, some of you, I think, haven't actually discovered our YouTube, cha YouTube channel. Um, this is a fairly new innovation um, from Signum, really, just over the last six months or so, that we have posted every recording of every single Mythgard Academy class ever to our new Mythgard channel. So if you just look up Signum University on YouTube, you'll find our channel. It has it, uh, it has all of the myth. So there's a whole Mythgard Academy playlist with separate uh, playlists for each one of the courses. So anything that we've done... 
um, you can go back and review. So it's uh, uh, so it's it's very cool. Um, anyway, so so uh, you know, uh, easy opportunity to to catch up on 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 previous things. Um, so anyway, so that, that's of course another option to do. But it's not, the history of Middle Earth series is not exactly. Um, you know, the volumes don't exactly end on cliffhangers, you know, in that kind of way. It's just, it's, it's, you know, each one is basically a glimpse into a different sort of era of Tolkien's development of his thought um, as he goes through. So, um, you know, it's, it's, I, I doubt that much in the Lost Road class is going to be wholly, you know, unintelligible without the previous stuff. But, okay. Um, Let's, uh, let's, let's forge ahead. Let's move on. Let's get through as many questions uh, as we can here this evening. Okay, um, I wanted to thank Mike R. for his first question where he was asking me about this passage. And Mike, I'm going to make a confession. I had this passage all queued up to talk about anyway. And I wanted to talk about this anyway because this is one of my, this is my favorite Van Helsing moment. Uh, I know that Van Helsing's uh, English drives Yana crazy, and I'm Yana. I'm going to come to that and address some of your frustrations with Van Helsing uh, in the next slide. But, um, but this is. I mean, I, I just uh, I, this this passage cracks me up every single time I read it. This is Van Helsing's summary of the conversation he had at the docks um, with the. Um, uh, with the the, the, the the person at the dock who is recounting the story of Dracula and the sea captain when Dracula takes his last earth box and, and goes to set sail uh, for, uh, for Varna. Whereupon the captain tell him that he had better be quick with blood, for that his ship will leave the place of blood before the turn of the tide with blood. Then the thin man smile and say that of course he must go when he think fit, but he will be surprised if he go quite so soon. The captain swear again, polyglot, and the thin man make him bow, and thank him, and say that he will so far intrude on his kindness as to come aboard before the sailing. Final the captain, more red than ever, and in more tongues tell him that he doesn't want no Frenchman, with bloom upon them, and also with blood, in his ship, with blood on her also. Uh, absolutely love, absolutely love this passage. Now, I know that this is. So Mike was uh, sort of complaining that this this he just wasn't really following what was going on here. It's kind of an inside joke, and it certainly is an inside joke that I think will probably be lost on on some Americans because these are not expressions that Americans use very often. Um, but basically, these are just common English swear words. Um, and if you think back to you know uh, any like 19th century English period piece you've heard, um, uh, uh, you know even a lot of Money Python sketches or something, you may remember uh, this. Uh, so this is just the adjective bloody uh, and blooming. Uh, so of course, clearly, what the captain actually said—that he'd better be bloody quick, for his place would have to leave the bloody place before the turn of the bloody tide, right? Um, the, the captain's just just cursing, blood and blue, you know, uh, bloody and blooming uh, are, you know, relatively in late in the late nineteenth century, they're relatively uh, minor uh, swear words, still very coarse language. This is how the sailors talk down at the dock, you see. Um, and, uh, and Van Helsing is 
sort of literally translating it. Like Van Helsing doesn't really get it. He doesn't speak English dockside, right? He, so these, these English swear words are clearly beyond his experience, and so he's translating it literally, right? Um, had better be quick with blood, the place of, and, uh, you know, with bloom, up, doesn't want no Frenchman with bloom upon them, and also with blood in his ship, with blood on her also. Uh, yeah, he doesn't want no bloody bloomin' Frenchman uh, on his bloody ship, of course, is what the captain has said. Um, so, uh, uh, anyway, I, I don't, and Gerald, I don't think there would have been a big restriction of him getting the swear words in print. I don't think that would have been a, um, uh, that would have been a, a huge problem. And Yana, you're right. It's certainly, traditionally, bloody was uh, uh, the, the, using bloody as a as a swear word uh, was a serious swear word in the sense. That, I mean, originally, if you go back to the Middle Ages, which is where that swear word comes from, um, it is as almost all medieval swear words are rooted in blasphemy. Uh, most modern swear words in English are based either uh, essentially they're sort of coarse words describing biological functions of one kind or other, many of them, most of them, really, um, and uh, uh, many of them sexual in nature. That was not the case, of course, in the Middle Ages. Almost all swear words in the Middle Ages and are sort of qualify as swear words. Many of the words which now count as swear words were not considered swear words. Um, uh, in the Middle Ages, for instance, many of those are old. Many of the modern swear words are actually old words uh, that have been around for hundreds of years. They just weren't even really impolite uh, until quite recently. Um, the the bad words, the curse words, were uh, were, were blasphemous words. And so, bloody is is a is a an actual reference to the blood of Christ. You're, you're swearing an oath by the blood of Christ. Um, so. Um, uh, so anyway, th those are uh, yeah good. Arthur uh, specifies obscenities rather than rather than swear words. Yes, you're right. Modern uh, modern cussing uh, to use the, uh, the 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 American Southern word, which actually I think is I really like that word uh, as being much more specific because cussing is different from swearing, really, right? Uh, but anyway, most modern American English cuss words um, are, are really obscenities, as you say, Arthur, rather than, rather than swear words, technically. Um, anyway, so, uh, so you, you were, it was all blasphemy. So, you know, if you, when you read um, Chaucer, even Shakespeare, you can see, I mean, some of the, you know, like whenever you, when you hear, you know, like, um, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, Juliet's nurse and Romeo and Juliet, you know, saying odds bodikins or, or something, which sounds just really silly to a modern audience. That's a, that's a, 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 um, a crude jumble of, you know, by God's body. It's swearing by the incarnate body of Jesus. So again, all of those things, you know, God's, God's blood and bones, um, you know, all, the, 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 these are all, Blasphemous curses, taking essentially taking the Lord's name in vain, um, and thus were um, uh, were were discouraged. Yes, exactly, Rachel. You do remember Hamlet saying "splood," s apostrophe blood, his blood, Christ's blood. In other words, um, yes, uh, zounds, z o u n d s, which is an uh, which is a contraction of his wounds, the wounds of Jesus on the cross. Again, another uh, uh, sort of blasphemous swear word. So yeah, all all that stuff um, uh, is uh, is the, that's that's the old. So anyway, so that's where the and blooming. I actually have no idea of the. If anyone knows the or the origin of blooming 
you know, or blooming as a as a as a you know a profanity. I don't know that one. Um, so um, anyway, I I, I, I you know I I'd, so, I'd no clue exactly what that means. So. So what do we see here? On the one hand, we see my favorite, most adorable, hilarious uh, Van Helsing English passage. Just absolutely, the, the, uh, if the captain were just quoting, uh, you know, with his coarse language, it was just quoted using his coarse language, it would be, you know, merely coarse and uh, not really funny, but actually sort of spelling it all out um, is, um, is, I, I, is I, becomes very, very comical. But more than that, of course, you'll notice, obviously, it creates an interesting effect, right? A very conspicuous one for two reasons. Um, of course, this is a perfectly common, you know, dockside, you know, curse word. It's perfectly, you know, anthropological in that sense, you know, to be quoting the, you know, the, the dockyard guy speaking like this. But, of course, it's doubly conspicuous in this book, right? Both because... This is Dracula we're talking about, right? So, uh, be quick with blood, the place of blood, the tide with blood, right? By the way that, I mean, you would just skim over it, right? If he just said, be bloody quick for my ship is going to leave the bloody place before the turn of the bloody tide, you'd notice, you know, the cuss word, but you, you know, you wouldn't think about it, right? Any more than you really think about the particular anatomic function associated with like an Ameri a modern American obscenity. Usually it's just, it's not how those words work, right? But Van Helsing, by turning those words around like this and sort of taking them out of their idiomatic context, forces us not to take them for granted. And so we have this image of Dracula and the, you know, with blood, with, you know, his ship with blood on her also. Yes, there is going to be, you know, sort of blood on his ship, um, uh, metaphorically, so Gerald, yes, absolutely, it's uh, it's it's perfect uh, for for Dracula. But of course, if we think back to the original meaning of the word, it's a it's an oath sworn by the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross, which of course, as we've seen, also has very particular relevance uh, to Dracula and has been in this communion context and in the 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 vampire baptism of blood, which is the sort of the parody of. Uh, you know, again, there you, you have even the you know more directly the the, the parody of Dracula as the um, you know the, the 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 reverse Christ figure shedding his blood and giving his blood. Right? You have remember I quoted that passage from John where Jesus says, you know, if you uh, eat my flesh and drink my unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And then here's Mina, right, literally drinking the blood uh, of Dracula. So, uh, you know. Again, I'm not saying that this, you know, this makes this passage like weighty and, you know, uh, symbolically significant. Um, no, it's funny, but it's funny in a kind of, as I say, in a doubly conspicuous way. Um, okay, several people are uh, suggesting yes that blooming is really just a euphemism for bloody. Yeah, Tom Hillman says it's like fudge. Uh, you know, if you don't want to use the F word, you say fudge instead. People said blooming uh, instead of bloody. Okay, that makes. Uh, that makes that makes sense. Several people have recorded have uh, reported that. Um, okay, so that's why I couldn't I didn't didn't think of any uh, uh, derivation for it because it doesn't really have one exactly. Um, uh, I mean, not a direct one, an indirect one, I suppose. Uh, anyway, okay, um, <clears throat> on to um, Yana's complaints. 
<laughs> gripes with Van Helsing's uh, English. And, and, uh, and Yana, you make some great points and bring up uh, something I, I was wanting to mention anyway. Um, uh, so uh, uh, Yana uh, has uh, coined the term uh, Van Helsinglish uh, for, <laughs> for the particular uh, English uh, sort of hybrid that Van Helsing uses. Um, and I, I know I've mentioned this before, but again, uh, Jana, whom I refer to and who's, who posted this question, uh, is in fact um, a Dutchman, though I, I, not a thick-headed Dutchman, uh, Jana, um, as Renfield calls Van Helsing. But anyway, um, so Ed, Ed, Jana has been sort of responding to the way, you know, the way in which um, uh, Stoker is not really sort of representing how a native Dutch speaker would speak English badly, right? Assuming that a native English, uh, assu assuming a native Dutch speaker who does speak English badly, and of course, Jana, we are far from assuming that all native Dutch speakers would speak English badly as Van Helsing does, but, but the question is not, um, you know, whether or not he speaks it well, the interesting thing is how exactly he speaks it poorly. And here's uh, one of the two points that Yana makes. The other point, Yana, actually, I'll lead with that because I, I didn't quote it. Um, but uh, uh, Yana was also kind of irritated by the fact that when when Van Helsing appears to sort of lapse, it, uh, to all appearances, he's lapsing into his native tongue, right? Um, there are a few times that he, in a moment of stress or surprise, will, will you know, bring forth uh, a non-English exclamation, right? Um, but of course, as Jana has pointed out, when he does that, he's always speaking German, not Dutch. In fact, like, mein Gott, right, when he uh, sees Lucy uh, completely pale and drained. Um, yeah, or, you know, Gott in Himmel, uh, it's, he, he, he speaks German and not, not Dutch. And Jana, I, 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 I agree. And I don't know what Stoker was doing there. You know, whether this is like purposeful and he is deliberately tweaking the noses of the Dutch, uh, which I don't consider impossible uh, that, you know, basically Stoker to his British audience is having an ins is sort of sharing an inside joke at the expense of the Dutch. I could not at all rule that out. I am not at all asserting that that's definitely the case, but let me just say I would not be shocked to find uh, that that is... Um, uh, that that is not... I, 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 I wouldn't be shocked to find that that was happening. Uh, Gerald Michael says, most of Van Helsing's dialogue, of course, is written by others. Yes, the, there are only two times we get Van Helsing's uh, uh, sort of first-hand account. Um, one is in the, uh, the, the, the letter that he leaves for uh, Dr. Seward um, on the one night that he goes to Lucy's tomb to watch alone um, before, after he brings Seward there for the first time and before he comes back uh, with Arthur and Quincy. Um, he weaves John a letter. And the second time, and of course he does have a, a, a letter that he sends to him earlier on, though that's included in Dr. Seward's diary. And the final, of course, is the, mem the memorandum that he writes at the very end when Mina's not uh, um, uh, typing in her stenography anymore. So, um, but of course, the problem, Gerald, is that when we do hear from Van Helsing directly those times, it, his speech is fairly consistent with how his speech is, is reported uh, by the others. Besides which, you don't think that Mina's going to be inaccurate, do you, in recording Van Helsing's speech? I mean, that's, you know, no way, man, no way. Um, so, uh, 
okay, okay. Um, uh, so, uh, so yeah, yeah. Y- Yana is suggesting perhaps the fact that he, as a modern Dutch person, was uh, uh, really irritated by Van Helsing. Perhaps that suggests that uh, if Bram, if Bram Stoker was having a joke at the Dutch, it's, it's apparently still working a hundred years later. Um, uh, but anyway, exactly. Jennifer is also very skeptical that Mina would make transcription errors when it comes to transcribing uh, uh, Van Helsing, and I, and I have to agree. But anyway, okay, back to uh, Jana's other point, though, about slang, which I think is, 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 is a very good one. Um, two passages, Jana quotes, Van Helsing laid a hand on his shoulder and said, Brave lad, a moment's courage and it is done. This stake must be driven through her, to Arthur, of course. My biggest gripe here is the phrase brave lad, showing a mastery of English slang that I did not expect him to have. Friend Quincy is right, said the professor. His head is what you call in plain with the horizon. No, that's not how anyone would say level-headed. It's too convoluted. All of this is very inconsistent with his character. Um, I hear you, Yana, and it is certainly true uh, that often Van Helsing's attempts at slang phrases are hilarious. My favorite, as I said, the uh, the the with bloom and also with blood passage, is my my overall favorite Van Helsing uh, 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 linguistic moment in the book. But my favorite single Van Helsing line uh, is uh, when they find out that Dracula was living next door to Dr. Seward and, and his immediate reaction is, oh, if only we had known this before, we might have saved poor Lucy. And then he says, ah, the milk that is spilt cries not out afterwards, which I think is ju- it's, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. I, it's, that's what I often quote, actually, um, uh, you know, when I'm in that situation and, and, and you know, want to say, uh, talk about not crying over spilled milk. I, 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 I prefer to quote Van Helsing's version, the milk that is spilt cries not out afterwards. Um, so he often swings and misses at these, uh, at these things. And Yana, you are right. I think that some of the ways in which he is wrong, that was, some of the ways in which he gets the idioms wrong are um, wildly improbable. Um, Yana, my, 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 my vote for least probable Van Helsing English, error of English idioms is when right at the end of the, the after they've they've just uh, uh, driven the stake through Lucy and cut off her head, and they've left the uh, the tomb, and the four of them, right, Seward and 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 Quincy and Arthur and uh, Van Helsing are standing around, and they're sort of making the pledge, right, that they're going to pursue Dracula together, and they they won't give up until this is all settled. Um, Van Helsing says that once we have set our feet to the plowshare, there is no turning back. And that's just silly, right? I mean, of course, he's talking about setting your hand to the plowshare. First of all, this is not even an idiom. That's a quotation, right? It's a biblical quotation about setting your hand uh, to the plow um, and not looking back. Um, and he's screwing up the quotation. And basically, the idea of, you know, that, that he basically, the, the joke has to lie. Right? The only way that that joke makes any sense is to say that Van Helsing doesn't really know what the plow, what a plow, like the, the, the English word plowshare is unfamiliar to him. And so he thinks it's something you put your foot on in some way. But again, if he's going to make that quotation there, it's because he's quoting the Bible passage, which means he has to, in fact, have a concept of the plow. He might 
mistranslated. He might, you know, he might say it weird, but he wouldn't say it weird that way. Um, so, Yana, I do agree with you. And yes, this is, I agree with you, a very egregious example. His head is what you call in plane with the horizon. No, that's not, in fact, what they call it. Um, and, and as you say, Yana, nobody, nobody, would, nobody would get it wrong that way. Uh, it's just kind of silly. My conclusion, therefore, is that Bram Stoker was being kind of silly when doing that. I don't think that he's in those moments. Now, we've seen, remember, you know, Mr. Swales, and we talked about this some before, we do see some effort. Also, Donaldson, the Scottish um, ship's captain, right? He, uh, he, he does, uh, he makes a strong attempt, uh, Stoker does, at representing the, the, the Scotch dialect, uh, you know, the Scotch accent, uh, in uh, Captain Donaldson's uh, uh, dialogue there in, in Galatz when they finally catch up with him. Um, so we do see uh, Stoker being interested in um, representing the different dialects and, uh, uh, and, and accents that come in. So it's not that he just doesn't care and is just kind of mailing it in on the whole accent and dialogue and dialect thing all the way through. Clearly not, but um, but th there seems to, so th there seems to be kind of something else um, something else going on. Um, Carrie asks a very fair question: um, Is this uh, him being silly with Van Helsing's accent, or uh, or him being lazy as a writer and not editing his work well? Carrie, I th I I lean towards the former uh, for two reasons. One is. Again, that that kind of laziness isn't characteristic of him. Again, we see him being quite diligent in other places. And so, you know, I don't see why he would be sort of really flagrantly lazy in some places and not in others. I mean, that can happen, I guess, but it's it doesn't seem to me at all obvious that that's what's happening. Um, the other reason, though, is that it's very conspicuous that these most egregious instances of Van Helsing's English problems come at the time when he is translating not just English idioms, but as Jana has pointed out, English slang, right? Um, and this is actually something, I don't know if you noticed this as we were reading through, it's not something I mentioned, but um, but uh, it's, it's, slang is, is a, of great interest. Uh, to Bram Stoker. Uh, you can tell. I mean, it comes up all the time. Remember, it came up way back at the beginning. It, it came up between Jonathan and uh, and uh, uh, Dracula back in Transylvania, right, about getting his speech right, right, and make sure that he gets his speech ironed out um, and that he doesn't uh, mess up any, any language. But then his slang explicitly was raised by Lucy and Mina in their, uh, in their correspondence at the beginning, back in chapter five, when we first meet them. And she says, she uses slang, a couple slang terms, Lucy does, and then says, that's slang, of course. I don't know if I, if I should use slang, right? She says she doesn't know if Arthur likes it. Um, but um, but it, that's a way that slang has, and she just you know, goes on about slang. And then she quotes Quincy Morris's American Texan slang uh, uh, in great detail, and everybody loves it. Um, and yes, uh, Arthur, you're absolutely right. Uh, Arthur does like slang. In fact, he uses slang all the time. Um, and 
Stoker goes out of his way to draw attention to when his characters are using slang, he puts it in quotation marks, he, he, he um, will put in a tag, right? Like Van Helsing did here, even though he's doing it incompetently. Um, his head is what you call in plane with the horizon, right? That, that what you call is an indicator, right? That the thing I'm going to say next is a slang term, right? And you'll notice that. People will say, you know, as Quincy says, um, or, uh, or Arthur says, you know, when, uh, when Van Helsing asks him to promise before they go to Lucy's grave, to promise in advance, you know, that he'll trust him, um, Arthur says that, you know, I don't like to buy a pig in a poke, as they say in Scotland, right? So, uh, you know, uses a, a slang phrase and then attributes it, right, to, to where that slang comes from. Um, so, uh, anyway, that's, that's all... That, that happens continually. And once you kind of notice that, you, when you get, go back and reread the book again, thinking about slang, and you'll, you'll notice this all over the place. Stoker is just super fond of slang. So um, the fact that... So, Carrie, coming back to your point, the fact that this becomes most conspicuous at those slang... Mo- and those, those moments of slang usage, which Stoker's already drawing so much attention to to me makes it almost, it makes me very, very difficult for me to believe that he's just kind of letting it slip and not caring. I mean, he's really going out of his way to highlight those moments, and I I think if he's going to be lazy anywhere, he's not going to be lazy, not going to be merely lazy there. Um, But anyway, okay. Okay. Um, uh, All right. Anyway, so, uh, so, Yana, I do acknowledge your pain, and I do, the more I think about it, Yana, the more I'm beginning to, uh, um, the more I'm beginning to suspect that, that he was kind of having a go at the Dutch, uh, in his, in his translations with Van Helsing, and you're right, you know, you mentioned that it's kind of out of character with Van Helsing, and uh, you're right, I mean, it's really kind of a peculiar choice by Stoker, right, to, um, Essentially, to kind of poke fun at one of his sort of central and most serious characters. But, you know, in the end, I find it, and I, I'm, you know, you know, I, I'm, I, you know I, I wouldn't blame you if you don't feel this way, I find it very endearing, right? I, Van Helsing would be kind of insufferable, I think, in a lot of ways, if he weren't so, you know, adorably bumbling in his language. Um, He's supposed to be, you know, the, the way that he is presented as this, you know, sort of towering intellect and, and world-renowned scholar and, um, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, physician with nerves of steel. And, I mean, he's, he's this, you know, made out to be this really great man. And so instead of having him sort of strut around and look pompous and, and for us as readers to be really distant from him in ways that somebody with that kind of stature uh, might have uh, for us, it, it makes it, you know, you, um, instead, his linguistic incompetence, Van Helsing's, um, makes me instead feel towards him kind of like you do, kind of like you feel towards a very respected grandparent that you're trying to help them figure out how to use their iPad. Right, I, that's kind of the relationship I feel like I have with Van Helsing. Right, it's a very different one than I would have if he were merely full time the great man. If you see what I mean, 
Um, exactly. He's the cute old guy, Jennifer. That's exactly the, uh, you've said it enormously more, more, uh, uh, more succinctly than I did. Okay. More questions. Let's, uh, let's keep moving. Okay, actually, hang on. Let me, let me mix it in here. Because uh, there are a couple topics that have been raised as we go through. Let me try to hit some of these. Um, okay. Uh, interesting. Tony Mead. Slipping in another one, Tony. I got your question on Twitter, which we're coming to later. Uh, Tony says, both Dracula and the evil people in Middle-earth, Morgoth et al., have a problem with water. Is this a coincidence, or are both Stoker and Tolkien drawing from an older tradition? Um, uh, yes, I'm going to go with yes on the older tradition, but it's kind of vague. I mean, it's not that I think they're making the same reference and things, but if you think about it, I mean, in a lot of old fairy tales and things, like the, the, the significance of river crossings, right? I mean, of course, a river crossing was very significant geographically, you know, in the pre-industrial world anyway. Um, so... It's not like you have to go far out of your way to explain river crossings, but but even you know the sense of magic, the the sort of the the river crossing as as so often a boundary to fairy or some kind of uh, some kind of other world, um, you know, water and streams are often um, often have a kind of potency or magical significance, and that is something that you know you can see in in, in multiple different sort of traditions and mythologies. Um, do I think they're referring to the same thing or treating in the, in the same way? No, I mean, to me, one of the most puzzling, um, you know, really unanswered questions, I think unanswerable from the text, um, is, uh, like, the why, why water? Like, what's up with the turning of the tide? Why? Why at the slack and turn of the tide? I mean... I mean, I guess I can make something of the like sundown and and sunrise thing, right? And 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 noon, right? With the position of the sun and, um, you know, light and darkness and you know, good and evil. You know, you can kind of make that work, right? Sort of symbolically, it seems to fit. But why high and low tide? I, I don't get that. I don't really understand that. Um, and I and it's certainly never explained on a you know, uh, on a sort of metaphysical level within the book, right? Our, uh, Van Helsing mentions that this is true. He gives no explanation whatsoever why running water would have the kind of power. Like, if his coffin box is thrown off the boat into the river, he'll be destroyed, right, by the running water. Um, again, there are traditions about that that kind of thing. Um Tom Hillman is, think, is, is thinking of the River Styx, yes, as, of course, a, uh, another very, very famous boundary river, right, Tom, of course, absolutely. Um, so, um, so yeah, Tony, it's a very vague answer, but, uh, I mean, I, it, it's a really interesting topic, of course, you know, the issue of, of, of water and how it fits in with these is, a, you know, would be a really interesting paper, but, um, uh, 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 but anyway, yes, my, my short answer is, uh, no, I don't think it's merely a coincidence, but um, but the connection I don't think is that is that direct either. Um, okay, Tony is trying to bait me to talk about Boethius. Duly noted, Tony. I'll get back to that in a few minutes with another question. Actually, um, okay. Uh, all right, good, good. Let's uh, 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 we'll keep going. I might come back to others later on, but let's. Uh, Let's 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 move forward now too. Tony is wondering: Does it have anything to do with baptism? 
Maybe. You mean in Dracula itself? Um, you know, with all the other sort of spiritual and biblical imagery, it's conceivable. Um, I don't find it compelling. I mean, there is the use of baptism as an image when talking about the baptism of blood, though that has actually nothing to do with water. Literally water, I mean. Um, there's that language of Lucy's when she's describing her out-of-body experience, and I was arguing that, it, you know, she, she, she describes it as if she's drowning, right? Like she, you know, she's... But I mean, that may just be imagery that, you know, so you could call that baptismal imagery conceivably. Again, she's being sort of baptized into uh, the control of, of, of Dracula there as she's being bitten for the first time. And it kind of works. You can, you can do that. I mean, you can, you can run with that. But it's not super compelling from the text. It's not inevitable, certainly, I think, from the text. Um, it can just as easily be dismissed, I think, as a, just a way of her describing the physical experience of, you know, suffocating and dying. Um, so, um, anyway, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Um, let's, um, let's move on. Okay, so here, here's, a, this is an excellent Twitter question I got last night. Um, uh, I, I don't know this person's name. Uh, Cass Sachs is her, uh, uh, her Twitter handle. Uh, she said, when Dracula interrupts the three female vampires, their response is not, we were hungry and need to feed, but rather, you yourself never loved, you never love. Is this an example of how the vampire is a perversion of love and religion? Um, yeah, well, let me give you the, uh, as a bonus, I'm going to add to, uh, to Cass's quote here, um, what, this is what comes immediately after that quotation. On this the other women joined, and such a mirthless, hard, soulless laughter rang through the room that it almost made me faint to hear. It seemed like the pleasure of fiends. Then the Count turned, after looking at my face attentively, and said in a soft whisper, Yes, I too can love. You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? Well now, I promise that I promise you that when I am done with him, you shall kiss him at your will. Now go. Those two lines, you yourself never loved, you never love, and yes, I too can love, you yourselves can tell it from the past, might be, I, for my money, the most tantalizing lines in the entire book. We have, I have no idea what he's referring to. We never get any backstory here. Um, uh, what they're talking about is a mystery utterly unrevealed, um, totally unilluminated by the entire rest of the story. Um, so that is just, uh, you know, as in Tolkien, an untold story that we're just kind of left to speculate about. Um, uh, notice a couple things. Um, one, th that you, as you can see in their reaction here, um, this is mockery, right? Um, you yourself never love, you never love. This is not her making a, an earnest appeal, right? This is not, um, uh, this is not a serious argument or discussion being put forward, right, by the vampire woman. This is a piece of ridicule that is being thrown at him by the woman and then taken up. And, you know, on this the other women joined, um... Which leads me to suspect that they're actually like, like you never love, you never like. They're actually like playground chanting it at him, is is what I take, and then, and laughing, right, soulless laughter, uh, like the pleasure of fiends. 
Um, and the way in which it would be like the pleasure of fiends, presumably, is that it is pleasure in the suffering of someone else, right? That's I, what I take from the phrase that it's like the pleasure of fiends. Um, so they're baiting him. They're, 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 you know, twisting some kind of knife in him and enjoying it is what I take from that. Um, his response, and notice what he does, right? Um, he turns and looks at Jonathan's face attentively before he whispers. Why does he do that? He seems, that seems to me, an indication of self-consciousness or something on his, on his, like he's looking at Jonathan's face to make sure he's asleep, which he's not, but apparently Jonathan is faking it convincingly, right? Um, so looking at his face attentively to make sure Jonathan could not possibly overhear what he says next, um, which leads me to suspect that what he says, yes, I too can love you yourselves, can tell it from the past, is it not so, is in that way, therefore, like the most unguarded, sort of private words of Dracula. The rest of it that we hear, all the, all the rest of the words of Dracula that are quoted in the book are performative, right? When he's speaking to Jonathan, right, deliberately sort of choosing his words, when he's, when he's you know, uh, when he's mocking at them or when he's speaking to Mina and conveying, a, you know, basically a message, an indirect message for her to bring back to the men, right? Um, you know, all those, all those are sort of carefully constructed or at least much more self-conscious utterances on his part. Here's him looking to make sure he's not being overheard and what? Speaking up honestly, right? Um, perhaps uh, saying something personal? I don't really know. Um, uh, so, okay. So then what does that mean? You yourselves can tell it from the past. Is it not so? I have to think that that means that he loved them? Maybe when they were all alive together? Does this mean Dracula had like a harem? Are they his sisters or were some of them his sisters and he loved them? I don't know. <laughs> Jordan says he's speaking from his unheart. Yes. Uh, because the remember the, the heart of him is not, Van Helsing says, right? Um, uh, but anyway, yeah, James uh, Stevens makes a really good point. Uh, it says, uh, Harker suggests at the end of the book that many vampires are created because people allow themselves to become vampires to, to stay close to their loved ones, right? Exactly, as Jonathan Harker says, I suppose that this is why in the old days one vampire often meant two vampires, right? Um, could the Count have followed that path or possibly the women? The women, I would think, James, as everything we're told suggests that Dracula was the first, so presumably the women followed him, right, um, into vampirism uh, after their own deaths. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, thinking for a second, uh, Tomas Delgado had just asked about them being referred to as, as Dracula's brides I don't think they are in the text. I'm running through my copy of the... Anyway, 
If somebody has an electronic text, search it. See if the word bride appears and if it does, uh, if it's used of them specifically. I don't remember it being used in the text. I think that concept is a later concept. I think it's a movie content, uh, uh, concept specifically to think of them as his brides. Maybe it does. I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, if you've got an electronic text, look it up and let me know. Um, okay, no, it's not used. Okay, good. I didn't think so. I didn't think so. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, so yeah, anyway, that, that concept is there, but it's not in the original text. Um, we'll get to that, presumably. Um, okay, and... There's, of course, the other question, which one of you talked about. Yeah, Karita said uh, way back ten minutes ago, um, what exactly is meant by love in this case, I wonder. And Karita, that's, of course, a very excellent question. Um, uh, in both cases, right? When the women are doing their taunt and when he is responding, I too can love, what does that even mean to them exactly? Um, so back to, uh, to uh, Cass's original question, is this an example of how the vampire is a perversion uh, of love and religion? I'm calling her Cass, by the way, because there's a picture of a saxophone on her profile, so I assume that's where the sax comes from. Just a guess on my part. Um, anyway, so uh, is this an example of how the vampire is a perversion of love and religion? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, notice even the, um, the way that they bring up love and his love just as obviously as a way of getting to him, right? And of taunting him and goading him in this particularly uh, uh, sort of childish but heartless fashion, right? Um, does certainly suggest the sort of distance there. Um, one consequence of this passage, like I said, that you know the full mystery of these lines is never resolved in the story. It doesn't really seem to be a story that Stoker showed any interest at all in taking or following up. No one's even curious about that. There's no one within the book is ever curious about the women or what they meant. Remember, they're all reading the text really carefully themselves, right? So they, they, they know these quotes, but nobody ever talks about it. Um, so in that sense, it's not, really, uh, it's not really a question that the text is interested in answering, and therefore you don't want to go too far with it. But... Um, I do think it's interesting what the the role that it seems to me to play is that it helps to perhaps rather than giving us a concrete idea of the relationship between Dracula and the vampire women it might protect us from having a particular uh, that is okay if they never had this exchange at all right if he just came in and yelled at them and gave them the baby in the bag you know they're like their takeout, right, and they leave, um, we might make certain assumptions about them, right, about their relationship, Dracula and the women, right, like we might think they're his wives or something. Um, instead, we get this, um, uh, instead uh, we get the, the mockery, you know, the, 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 the talk of love, between them, the implication that there might be something of that kind, but it's obvious—it's obviously not—we're not seeing like some kind of happy, cheerful vampire domestic relationship here, right? If ever we might have made that assumption, 
their mockery and their soulless laughter like the pleasure of fiends should help to kind of insulate us from coming to the conclusion that Dracula and his three vampire brides, right, are living this, you know, sort of happy, you know, undead polyamorous existence there in Transylvania. Um, that's not what's happening. And yet the concept of love and even of sort of some kind of erotic connection between Dracula and those women in life is still there, right? So that idea of love between, you know, love between man and woman being corrupted and twisted and now perverted into something evil and mocking and hateful and devilish is all, that, that, that concept is also planted here for us, right? Um, preparing us for what we'll see with Lucy later on. Um, yeah, exactly, Rachel. We don't see a hint of affection of any sort. But again, see, but, but do you see what I mean by saying if we didn't have this exchange at all, we might fall into the assumption, right? Like, well, maybe Draco's not so bad. He's part of this, you know, non-traditional but, you know, supportive vampire family, right? Back in... Um, but... Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, I think we are we're, we're sort of forearmed against that, especially since remember this is chapter three. We're still in the early stages of figuring out what the heck is going on and um, and uh, you know what the what the terms are. We're not going to really see more on that whole perversion of love thing uh, until we get, as I said, to Lucy later on. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, good, and as several people point out, he does leave them behind, and yeah, and doesn't seem to... I mean, his selfishness, of course, which becomes so heavily focused on in the, at, the, at the end of the book, obviously extends to them, too, right? He doesn't really seem to think about them very much. Um, I doubt he's uh, sending home uh, letters, right? You know, I, 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 I don't think he brought them anything from London, right? I mean, there just doesn't seem to be any real connection between him and them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but Mick, no, we have no idea. McNeil asks, why, do, uh, do we know why he's keeping other vamps in his castle? No idea. No idea. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, really, uh, there's really no indication at all. Um, but, um, but yeah, Roy, I agree. It, it does, it leaves a, a perception of depth. I mean, thinking, of course, of Tolkien there. Um, uh, Tolkien was... T said that originally about Beowulf, how it gave that perception of depth by sort of touching on things that aren't, um, that aren't explained and aren't really filled in. So it gives a protect, uh, the perception of the depth of traditions and stories that lie behind it that we never even really hear about. I agree that that's primarily how this passage hits me um, and why I'm okay with not really knowing what the heck they're talking about. Um, exactly. The suggestion of the sort of the wealth of the his of his own personal history, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rachel asked, "Was it his intention to feed off of Jonathan prior to this scene?" That seems possible. That seems possible. Um, uh, and he's like changed his. Mind. I mean, we see him being fairly pragmatic about that kind of like with the sailors, right? Um, he's got a use for Jonathan, but after he leaves, he's going to, you know, he, he doesn't have any use for him then. So the choice to leave Jonathan behind to them, right, uh, so that they can uh, kiss him uh, after, he, after Dracula leaves, um, 
does seem to be perhaps a new plan that he adopts at this moment. All right. Uh, okay, good. You guys were really good at identifying all of the the passages I understand least. Um, uh, I think I get this one, but it's one of those John Sewardisms that's kind of a head scratcher for a while. Um, this is right after they hear the news that Dracula's ship has gone on to Galatz instead of landing at Verna. And he's talking about how they um, uh, they are sort of, they knew that something was going wrong and they, you know, so they, but yet they're, you know, surprised and disappointed and, and everything. And so he's talking about the reactions to that. I suppose that nature works on such a hopeful basis that we believe against ourselves that things will be as they ought to be, not as we should know that they will be. Transcendentalism is a beacon to the angels, even if it be a will-o'-the-wisp to man. Um, that last sentence I did not understand uh, for a long time. Carita said she misread that as uh, is bacon to the angels, and she was confused. Um, uh, yeah, In some ways, actually, that's uh, even more... Uh, 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 sensible, perhaps. But, okay. Um, my understanding of what Dr. Seward is getting at here is he's saying, like, that uh, the idea, like, fixing your eyes on, like, ultimate things. Um, this might be a beacon to the angels, like a guiding light to angels who are not trammeled with worldly things, right? Who are not, um, who already exist sort of above and outside the troubles of, you know, the troubles and, and, and uh, vicissitudes of our world. But to man, it's a will of the wisp, right? If you, if you, if you are looking towards the goal and, and sort of believing and assuming, if you're operating on a hopeful basis, as he said, if you believe that things uh, will be as they ought to be, you're going to be misled, like following a will, a will of the wisp, uh, you know, a, a, a you know, little moving flash of light in a swamp. Uh, thinking that it's going to lead you out, and it will it will almost certainly lead you into the mire instead. Um, so, uh, so he's commenting on hope, right? And if you live on a hopeful basis, that is, if you believe that things will be as they ought to be, um, or as Galadriel says, if you believe that what should be shall be, um, then you're going to be disappointed all the time. Right? But we can't help ourselves from operating that way, is Dr. Seward's point. But it's a will-o'-the-wisp, right? To, to, to believe that is not true. But of course here, I mentioned in class last time that I think that the way that hope is treated in the last portion, in the last three, six chapters uh, of the book, is very much like how Tolkien deals with hope. Um, Tolkien has two different elvish words for hope identifying two different things that often go by that name in English, right? One is working on a hopeful basis, right? Believing that things are going to turn out well and how you want them to. That hope is a, is a temporal hope. It's a shallow hope, and it's a misleading hope. It's false most of the time, right? But Estelle, right? That's the, uh, that's the elvish word for, 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 for high hope, for ultimate hope for placing your reliance upon the idea that the big picture is going to turn out ultimately the way that it, uh, the way that it is supposed to be, even if things don't turn out well for you, right? Um, 
if you think that everything is going to go smoothly, you're going to be really upset when you find that Dracula has gone to Galatz instead of Varna, and you're now having gotten there like weeks in advance and been sitting around twiddling your fingers, waiting for him to show up, and you've got you've got a plan, and and there's no way he can escape you, and of course you find that things don't turn out well, right? Um, if that's what hope means to you, right, the belief that things are going to go smoothly, you're going to be you're going to be an embittered person, right? But if instead you trust that as they do, as the characters are doing so frequently, right? We are in the hands of God. Um, they're sort of relying that God's in control and they don't know how it's going to turn out. They don't know why it's happening this way, but they just trust that God knows what he's doing and it's all going to work out in the end. And of course it does all work out in the end. Sometimes it works out in your, for your benefit, like it does for Mina and Jonathan. Sometimes it works out not the best for you in the short term like Quincy Morris, who doesn't exactly have a happy ending uh, in a traditional sense, right? But, um, but big picture, uh, hope works out. This is the, again, this is the kind of hope we see in The Lord of the Rings and The Return of the King when Sam sees the star in Mordor, right? And he realizes that at the end of the day, the shadow is a passing thing, right? And there's light and high beauty that it can't touch. That's the hope that Sam, that leads Sam to go to sleep and just trust that things are going to be fine. Why? Because he thinks he's going to succeed? Because he knows he's going to win? Because he believes, because he's operating, he's working on a hopeful basis? No. No. The opposite. That He's letting go of that and saying, like, well, we're going to live or we're going to die, but I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. That's not going to be what I'm going to put my focus on. Uh, big picture, right? Uh, big picture, it's going to work out, whether it works out well for us. That distinction in hope I think is a really important one to uh, uh, to Stoker at the end of Dracula, and I think that uh, this is one of the passages, confusing though that sentence is, uh, it's one of the passages I think where we can, uh, where we can see it. Um, yeah, yeah, good. Um, uh, Yeah, and Arthur's asking about the prevalence of vampire stories. We've talked about this a few times. Um, they'd been around, but but again, they've just they weren't mainstream. Such I, you can you can as I, as we've talked about before, you can tell by how he wrote this that he is assuming that most of his readers are not going to instantly know what he was talking about. I mean, I think I've mentioned in early drafts of Dracula, Stoker originally called before he kind of came across the really cool. Uh, stuff about the historical, uh, uh, you know, uh, Dracul, uh, and incorporated that into the story. Originally, he was he was just called Count Vampire, uh, with a Y R E at the end. Um, so everyone is like, "Who is this Count Vampire, and what's up with him?" Right? And you don't write a book like that if you expect that people are going to know right away. I mean, it would have been dumb. Uh, so I, it's pretty clear that for his audience, anyway. These stories were clearly not were clearly not mainstream. Okay, more talked about hope. Uh, several people uh, asked about this. Uh, Philip had asked about this too. Is it simply coincidence that the count went to Whitby and attacked Lucy, who was connected to Jonathan Harker? Is this explained? No, it is not explained. No, it is certainly not coincidence. It's it's chance, if chance you call it. Right. I'm sorry with the Tolkien references tonight, but I can't help it. In the, with these two topics. Uh, Stoker and Tolkien are thinking very similarly. Um, 
I mentioned this in class last time as evidence. Remember Jonathan and Mina talking about how, you know, them suspecting that they are the instruments of providence, right? And I was asking, you know, do we have any reason to think that they're right about this? Are they just fooling themselves? Is this just kind of like a comforting narrative that they're adopting for themselves and for, you know, to try to, to try to get themselves psychologically through this very tough time that they, it comforts them to think that they are agents of providence um, because that suggests that, that, um, uh, that, that, that God is in control and things are not in fact as bad as they seem. But no, no, I, the, I mean, yes, there's lots of evidence to think that they're right about that, that, that in fact they are in touch with the narrative of the story we do see lots and lots and lots of coincidences. And this, I agree with Bill, this was another, um, uh, uh, this was another tweet that I got yesterday. Um, I agree that it's a shocking coincidence. And th th this, this to me is the biggest one. Um, the fact that he chose Whitby, of all ports in England, he had to choose Whitby, right? Of all the people in England to get connected with you know, during the funeral and end up biting, it has to be Lucy, right, who is the best friend of the fiancé of the one guy who knows who he is and what he's doing, Jonathan Harker, and Lucy, who also happens to be, you know, the beloved, uh, you know, woman proposed to by his next-door neighbor, and I mean, uh, the whole thing. I mean, it's, um, this, this is the fact, um, is, um, is really the, the, the central coincidence that undoes all of Dracula's plans. Had he chosen any other port in England, he'd been fine, right? Yeah, if he lands in Bristol, no worries, right? No one, how would anyone ever connect anything to anything, right? I mean, it would just, it, it, they would never, they would certainly never have been able to have uh, Jonathan Harker's connection. Um, so, anyway, um, uh, yeah. So, so, is this just a coincidence? Yeah. Um, well, in a sense, but but no. I, I mean, I, th I to me, it's pretty clear, especially with the cues that we get at the end, with the trusting themselves into God's hands and the explicit references to providence. I think it's pretty clear that this is how the book is prompting us to see this as not just lucky, um, but as as uh, as a stroke of as a stroke of providence. Um, okay. Questions of the will. Someone had been uh, uh, asking. A, uh, uh, Tony, I think this is you were asking a very similar question to this later, and I said we'd get to it, and here we are. I was especially intrigued by the discussion on will in the last class. There seems to be a lot of emphasis on Dracula imposing his will on Mina and others. Absolutely, I agree. But at the same time, we see the other characters speaking more and more about God's will. Also, agree very strongly. It would seem like there is even a juxtaposition of the two uh, to each other that is deliberate. Also, definitely agree. Uh, the group is able to defeat Dracula because they submit their will to God's rather than to Dracula's. I would also add, rather than to their own stupid plans, which is when they really start screwing up, right? When they decide that they know best how to do things and what to do, they screw things up royally with Mina, right? Um, so yes, when they start instead saying, you know, we are in the hands of God, things go much better. In addition to that, there is, is there some significance to the fact that Dracula gains control over Mina by having her drink his blood? I'm reminded of communion and how participants are to drink the blood of Christ. We already have seen how the vampire reacts to symbols of Christ's body, the crucifix and sacred wafer, uh, but there has been, and remember, 
not symbols if you're Catholic, right? Um, uh, like the wafer is not a symbol of Jesus' body. It is Jesus' actual flesh um, in essence. Sorry. Uh, but there has been no mention of the symbols of Christ's blood, which I find interesting given that that is what a vampire feeds on. Yes. Well, Rachel, exactly. I mean, in a sense, the the symbol of Christ... Uh, the, the, no, you're right. The, the, like the... Uh, Van Helsing doesn't run around with a flask of of blessed wine, right? Sprinkling that on things. So in that sense, you're right. Um, it's just Christ's body and not Christ's blood. Um, but you're right, Rachel, that um, the connection to uh, Dracula's blood, right? Or the Dr Dracula's drinking of blood. It, it, it comes back to that, I think, really clearly. Um, I think, Rachel, the connection you make is a really, really good one here. Um, and I do think that they are directly related. Um, and as you say, talking about the deliberate juxtaposition between, on the one hand, the voluntary submission to the will of God that we see the patients sort of finally coming to at the end, and the involuntary domination of their will by Dracula's will, first in Lucy, and then in uh, uh, and then in Renfield, and uh, and and in Mina, of course. Um, those two things are deliberately contrasted in, with each other and are part, in, in my view, one of the really central parts of that kind of mirror image thing that we get with Dracula and Jesus throughout the story. And I, I, I agree with your insight there that the drinking of the blood um, is a part of that picture. Again, I come back to that, um, not just to the communion ritual itself, but to that passage uh, from uh, John, chapter 6, that I quoted in class before. Um, uh, he who, uh, if, you do, if you do not uh, eat my fresh, flesh or drink my blood, you have no life in you, right? But if you do eat Christ's flesh and drink his blood, then you have Christ's life in you. Then you have life everlasting. Um, the, the life ever, the everlasting life that Jesus is talking about throughout the Gospel of John. Jesus keeps talking about this everlasting life, this living water, um, you know, the bread from heaven in that in that passage in, in in John six. That is, your own life will be replaced by you know you will have life and you'll have it more abundantly. You're, there's this like new kind of life. You are connected to Jesus. Your life becomes part of His life, and you're joined together. And that's ultimately what the communion ritual is all about, right? Both from when we see it instituted at the ends of the Gospels and in the actual rituals um, of communion, both within Catholic and Protestant traditions. It's that, um, that connection, whether it's a purely imaginative connection for radical Protestants or whether it's a literal physical connection uh, for Catholics, it's still about that identification, taking Christ's body and sacrifice literally into you, right, and becoming connected with it. Mina takes uh, Dracula's blood literally into her, right, and becomes connected to him, becomes subordinated to him. Uh, just as, but mirror opposite to how um, a servant of Christ becomes subordinated to Christ in that way. So, um, so yeah, definitely. It's definitely part of that, um, part of that picture. Yana has figured it out. Rachel, Yana has figured out that there is, of course, the symbol of Christ's body. The brandy 
it all makes sense now. That's why they're all going for brandy all the time, because it's recollecting the body of Christ. Uh, I'm joking about that. That's not actually true. Uh, uh, brandy is not used in the communion service, derived though it be from wine. Um, that's a joke, but it's a very funny joke, Yana. I like that. Um, uh, yeah, exactly, Nick, how the vampire's blood grants everlasting unlife, right, or undeath. It's almost, and you see how in that way, the, um, the, the, the phrase undead, which Stoker seems to be coining in this, in this uh, book, is almost like the opposite of that new life, right, that everlasting life, um, to get, it's like, what is the opposite of gaining new life, like Renfield wishes he could do, right? Um, and like Jesus actually, gi you know, uh, gives. What's the opposite of that? Undeath. It's the parallel mirror image, right, of, uh, of, of, this, of this life. Um, okay, so, yes, now, the, uh, the Bluefer lady is asking about sort of the connection between free will and the loss of free will through hypnotism slash mesmerism. We only get two examples of this, right? Um, Van Helsing speaks of hypnotism. He calls the kind of um, mental domination that vampires are able to do, like hypnotism, like when he, um, he describes himself as becoming hypnotized when he's staring down at the vampire woman when he first finds the, the, the first of the, of the tombs of, the, of the, the vampire woman, and he stands there just sort of gazing at her for a really long time. Um, and he says, in his own words, I was becoming hypnotized, right? Um, so that is like hypnosis, and it is true that hypnosis is the domination of the will of one person by another person, right? That's the concept of hypnosis. So yes, um, that is... Um, well, yeah, I was going to say it's, it's, it's a metaphor um, for what the vampires do, but it's more than just a metaphor. It's like a description of what the vampires do, right? Um, uh, so, um, anyway, um, but anyway, so of course the other place with the, with the hypnotism, the other way in which hypnotism comes in in the book is, of course, with Mina and Van Helsing. But see, Blue for Lady, um, the, to me, it's a really interesting, um, it's a really interesting moment when thinking about free will, right? Because, of course, there's all this emphasis, especially at the beginning when he first begins to hypnotize her, that what is happening when Van Helsing hypnotizes Mina is, on the one hand, it's the same process, right? that Dracula is doing. They're both hypnotizing, subordinating others' wills, and yet there's all this emphasis on how fully engaged Mina's own will is in that, right? The fact that it happens at sunrise and sunset when her will is free, right? It's only when her own will is free that he's able to hypnotize her because her will is submitting to him. Remember we looked at that passage last time about how quickly she submitted to the hypnotic trance, right? Um, because she is deliberately um, submitting her will uh, to Van Helsing's in order to accomplish their end. Um, uh, and of course, to add the final point there, it's her idea in the first place. You know, um, you can't exactly call the hypnotism by Van Helsing as like a domination of Mina's spirit when 
you know, she's like, you must hypnotize me, quick, do it now. Um, it, it obviously puts everything on sort of a different, uh, a different footing. Um, anyway, uh, so, um, yeah, Arthur uh, says that Saruman's a hypnotist. Um, you guys are awful in luring me so often to talk about Tolkien when I shouldn't be, but um, that's language, of course, that Tolkien never uses. Um, I mean, it's parallel in that it's, it's uh, and I agree, of all of the dominion of wills that we see in The Lord of the Rings, um, Saruman would be the one who seems to come closest to something like hip, something like hypnotism. But again, that's that's it's the metaphor. It's it's the vocabulary of Dracula, right? Of Bram Stoker's Dracula. That's very much the vocabulary that this book uses to think about domination of the will, hypnotism. That's not Tolkien's word, right? That's not Tolkien's language. That's not his. That's not his metaphor. So I I, I don't like to think about it in that way. I always try to stay within the the idiom of the text as much as possible. Um, anyway. Okay. Um, yeah, I know, Karita, I know you guys are doing it on purpose. You probably have a betting pool going on in the chat room. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, uh, yeah, I, one of my, uh, one of our one of the students actually was was mentioning on uh, on Twitter uh, uh, having a uh, having a drinking game of drinking every time I talk about Tolkien uh, in a non-Tolkien class, but um, yeah, which I would not recommend uh, for the sake of your liver. Uh, anyway, let's keep going. Talking, thinking about free will uh, and uh, and stuff. Let's let's go one step further. This is a question that uh, Gerald asked uh, um, a while back, and I've been saving this one. It's an excellent question. We've discussed how vampires are corrupted and corrupting, but how does that place an unwilling soul at risk? Van Helsing makes a point of claiming that Lucy's and Mina's souls are at risk. Um, and, and, and Gerald, remember, even says it of their souls, right? Um, you know, that when they are going... Have, you know, in pursuit of Dracula, they say a few times, right, that they're 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 putting their very souls at risk in doing this. Okay, but what basis is there for this claim? Under predestination, they're either saved or not, and becoming a vampire should have no power to change that. Under salvation by faith alone, unless the transition of vampire changes beliefs, their souls should also be safe. I can see how a case could be made under salvation by faith plus good works. Uh, so this is Gerald working through different uh, different. Uh, sort of Christian models of, of salvation and, you know, the different salvation theology here. But presumably any evil would have to be done under free will to count against them, and any acts they would commit as vampires would be under unwanted compulsion since they did not willingly become vampires. Is Van Helsing mistaken? Are his sources improperly lumping together people who willingly and unwillingly turned into vampires? Am I missing something? Or is Van Helsing's claim a simple way to state concern about the indefinite delay in a soul's journey caused by being trapped in a long-lived vampire's body? Okay. Um, great question. Um, great question, and Gerald, I fear my answer to it is not going to be hugely satisfying. Um, I do not get the impression 
that Bram Stoker is a very deep theologian. I don't think he has thought this question through all that much. I really don't. Um, it's... Remember back right around the death of Lucy? Um, when we were trying to make sense of, or rather, I should say more flatly, when I was acknowledging some of those passages which I just didn't get at all, you know, the kind of gradients that he seemed to be, or, or sort of different tiers of vampirehood, like she's a vampire officially, but she hasn't taken a life yet, so what does that mean? She's not, um, you know, been uh, sort of partaking of corruption and assimilating it by day. So what does that mean? You know, and there's the ref there are those references, um, Gerald, as you point out, to uh, to hell, right? The the uh, or the feet you love shall walk in paths of flame, right? It was what I was quoting there in the sub in, in the subtitle. He seems clearly uh, to be referring to hell. That like if they don't do anything, uh, you know, if they if, if 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 they don't act, Lucy's going to hell. That seems to be the implication of what he says, and yet. Um, there are other times when he doesn't seem to suggest that. In fact, if you remember the impassioned spiritual statement he makes after the burning of Mina's forehead, and he talks about how he feels certain that God will remove that stain from her at the Day of Judgment, if at no other time, right? Like, he may remove it, you know, soon, sooner than that, right? But at the very least, he's confident that he's gonna, she, he's, that God will remove it at the Day of Judgment. So Van Helsing is confident that Mina's soul will be saved because it would be unjust for Mina's soul to be condemned eternally to hell. Then in what sense is her soul at risk, right? I, 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 I just, it doesn't really seem to me to hold together. And Tom exactly Tom and Philip are, are say exactly where I was going next. The emphasis at the end of the book, with both the female vampires and of Dracula himself, and the look of peace that comes across their face before their bodies crumble into dust, implies, not stating fully or, or, or asserting firmly, but implying that they achieve some kind of spiritual rest, right? That they're, you know, it doesn't say like they're saved or going to heaven, but their, their souls are at rest, right? Um, and presumably not headed down the one-way trip to the paths of flame, right? Um, the souls of the, of the vampires who obviously, you know, obviously even Dracula himself, who, if anyone has passed the point of... If, if, if being a vampire and, and taking other people's lives, um, you know, puts you on the past the point of no return, spiritually speaking, as Van Helsing implies about Lucy, obviously Dracula has passed that, right? I mean, that's very clear. Um, and yet, and so, so in, in, if that's the case, in what sense is he, uh, uh, in what sense is he at peace in that moment before his death? I don't think, so this is what leads me to think I do not believe that Bram Stoker is really thinking consistently about these things. Um, I don't think that sort of theology is really what he's interested in. Um, I mean, there are these statements, right? Van Helsing talks this way. This does come up. But I actually think that the 
I talked last time about the way in which the this the spiritual focus of the story changes and intensifies as the story goes along. And I think, in my mind, there's even really sort of a shift in Bram Stoker himself. Um, I don't think the story really ends up in the place that he would necessarily have foreseen. I know I'm doing some critfic here to use my own uh, my own uh, phrase, speculating about what was going on in Stoker's mind as he was writing. Um, so I'll leave him out of it and just say, if you look at what happens at the beginning of the book and what this book is interested in at the beginning, even for the first half, I don't think that we would necessarily predict where it ends up at the end. Um, and once we have, um, you know, that quick, we have to get to Lucy and save her before she passes the point of no return and is doomed to hell for all eternity. Um, that concept seems to be simply displaced by this emphasis on forgiveness that is introduced through Mina, right? Um, Mina's reflections that Jonathan, there will, there may someday be some other husband who is just as aggrieved as you are and who is cursing me and wishing they could do my soul to hell, but you wouldn't want that, right? You would want somebody to have mercy uh, on me and to show forgiveness towards me, even though I may become a monster and be killing people and taking people's loved ones just like Dracula did. And then, of course, her urging forgiveness and mercy towards uh, towards towards Dracula himself. Tom, I agree. Bram Stoker's head is not uh, is not in plane with the salvific horizon. Uh, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. So, so I think if we're tr if we try to piece together all these references from one end of the book to the next and come and emerge from those, sort of put those together into some kind of systematic theology that Bram Stoker is advocating, I, I don't think it's going to work. Um, and again, I don't think that that's what Bram Stoker is, um, is going for. Um, let me, um, let me add, uh, let me add one other thing. A couple people were asking, what was Bram Stoker's religion? Is he Protestant or Catholic? This is an interesting exercise. Don't run to Wiki Wikipedia and look that up. Don't. Don't do it. This is actually a really interesting example of one of the reasons why I dislike knowing much of anything about the biography of an author until after I've thought about the text. I'm not saying there's nothing to be learned from the biography or anything like that. It's a very interesting study and it can add things, but I don't like to do it first. Because, okay, if we start by saying, okay, this is, this, these are Bram Stoker's religious beliefs, and then we go to the text, what are we going to do? Inevitably, inescapably, we're going to be biased in our reading because there are going to be certain things we expect to see. Right? And so when he brings up Protestant stuff or when he brings up Catholic stuff, we're going to be like, aha, I have the key. Right? I know what we're supposed to be paying because I, I know what his real beliefs were. Right? But that just gets in the way of our reading the text. Especially since, goodness knows, uh, there, we might be wrong right? or be making assumptions or making generalizations about his beliefs, which might not really be, be warranted. But... but um, Instead, do this. Look at the text. 
what conclusions can you draw just from the text? Does the text, does this story, appear to be advocating Protestantism or Catholicism? And the choice, that is, um, if you ask, well, why need we necessarily choose? Why is that a big deal? Uh, English tradition, English history, it's a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Um, you know, ask an Irish person if it's a big deal. It's a big deal. It's a big. You know, it's been a big deal for a long time. Um, it's still. A, it's. It's something which even in 1897 was still a very present question in Ireland and uh, and and in the rest of the UK as well. This is a major sort of ideological and social divide. Um, you do not have to go back very far from 1897 to find lots of to find mainstream, you know, uh, English works which are, you know strongly condemning popery, right, uh, Catholicism. Um, um, uh, what do we find? When we look at this book, what do we find? My conclusion, when I look at this book, it is fascinatingly neutral, in my opinion. On the one hand, Van Helsing is Catholic, and we see from the beginning, from Jonathan and the peasant woman who puts the crucifix around his neck and Jonathan's contemplations on that, we see the idea that these Catholic symbols, these Catholic things, right, like the crucifix with the crucified Jesus hanging on it, right, and the sacred wafer, the, uh, uh, the transubstantiated Catholic wafer, have real power, right? Okay, so from that, can we then conclude that he's really Catholic or maybe secretly Catholic and trying to sort of undermine the English Protestant thing, or you know, the Anglican Protestant thing, by saying, like, the real power lies in Catholicism? If you wanted to make that argument, you could, I mean, if that was your thesis and you were looking around for support for it, you'd find it, right? But I don't buy that. Because everybody, the whole framework of the story, remains consistently and unapologi unapologetically Anglican, right? There isn't any point, although they acknowledge and respect Van Helsing's Catholicism and his Catholic paraphernalia, um, none of them have any, you know, there's no question of like, oh, our, you know, our Anglican <clears throat> faith or our Anglican tradition or, you know, the, the, our Protestant stuff doesn't work, right? We've got to leave it behind and, and, and be Catholics instead or do Catholic stuff instead. Uh, no, apart from holding crucifixes, <clears throat> they remain, the rest of them, uh, not not Van Helsing, um, but the non-Van Helsing members of the party all remain happily Anglican, and their faith seems to be um, very much the 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 you know the the sort of the mainstream expression of that spiritual theme that dominates the uh, the end part of the work. So the fact that the story actually depicts a Catholic and Protestants working cheerfully together and totally on the same, uh, same page spiritually seems to me to be actually where the heart of his, you know, sort of sectarian interests are, showing these two things working together and not really prefer... And the extent to which he doesn't seem to prefer one to the other within the context of this story is, to me, the main thing that this story demonstrates. And so my first reaction when people say is, Bram Stoker, a Catholic or a Protestant, my first reaction is, wait, I don't want to know. I don't think that's the most important question. Let's look at what the text says first. 
And then after I do look at the text says, I come back and say, and from looking at the text, I conclude it doesn't actually matter all that much. Um, you know, if I were to find that Bram Stoker were a Catholic, it would all still, it wouldn't change my reading. If I find out that he's Protestant, wouldn't change my reading. Right? I, I don't. I don't think. Uh, I don't think that we gain any sort of new, uh, new, new insight there. Uh, Jordan asks, "What is Quincy Morris?" Really good question. Is he Anglican? Um, uh, ah, mm, no idea. No idea what Quincy Morris is. Um, he certainly seems to. He, he's a Baptist. Yeah, probably. Uh, uh, Philip and Arthur are suggesting he's a Baptist. Yeah, because he's a Texan. Um, he, he's Texan, Tom says. That's his religion as well as his citizenship, uh, probably so. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah, James does point out he's the one who uh, seems to display uh, an ignorance of Catholicism. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, but you know, he does seem to, he certainly goes along with uh, um, his, his language is still Christian. He doesn't say any of the really sort of spiritual stuff. Um, but, um, but anyway, he certainly, he certainly is, uh, is part of it. Anyway, okay. Just wanted to, just wanted to bring that up. Because I, I find, I find the question of Bram Stoker's personal religion a really fascinating, illust it's, it's actually an example I would use in a totally different context to try to explain or illustrate um, why I, prefer not to think about, or even in some cases even to know, um, certain biographical details before, uh, um, before, I, you know, before I really read a book carefully. Okay, moving forward. Uh, Tomas, who is here tonight also, uh, asked this question. I kept wondering about Dracula being able to command or at least extend his power over certain animal species, such as wolves, rats, bats, owls, spiders, and flies, and death's head moths, remember, while others seem to fear him or actively oppose him, such as horses and dogs. How, what are we to understand of this? I don't expect there to be a scientific explanation, but rather a spiritual one. Dracula has been depicted as a force of evil, perhaps the Antichrist himself or a manifestation of Satan, Possibly a manifestation of Satan or a demon um, who is, you know, possessing the body of a human. Not the Antichrist. Um, I, that's why I, I hesitate to use that word. And when I'm wanting to talk about Dracula as the as the opposite of Christ, I'm always very cautious because Antichrist is a very specific thing. Um, that is, it's a it's an end times like it's you know, it's connected with the end of the world and. I don't think that there's, a, you know, that kind of apocalyptic element of Dracula. So I try to stay away from Antichrist. So he's not the Antichrist uh, in the apocalyptic sense, but manifestation of Saint of uh, uh, of Satan. I can, uh, I can, I, I can, I can uh, get behind. Um, okay. So moving on. Does it mean then that there are animal species which are inherently evil? therefore allies to satanic forces. Can we actually say that there are certain species that are good and others that are bad, or should all be equal in the eyes of God? For instance, if you ask an ecologist, the bad species would be the invasives. In this scheme, rats and flies are still bad, but so would be dogs, while wolves and owls should be good species, as they are a natural component of a healthy ecosystem. What I think is that Stoker is eluding any scientific reasoning and tries to touch a deep chord in our instinct, selecting those animals that would, uh, that would cause us to shudder 
or to, to provoke some kind of fear or phobia, some that we can perceive to be evil instinctively. Tomas, I absolutely agree. Um, uh, yes, I absolutely agree that that seems to be the premise upon which these things are being chosen, why these particular um, foxes also, right? Um, why these particular species? Not, I think, I, the, the point, again, I, I think the point is not a theological one. I, again, I don't think theology is really um, Bram Stoker's line. Um, so I don't think he's making some huge metaphysical claim about the inherent evil of rats um, or bats. But he is, I want to say, almost like providing us a cue, right? Um, remember the very first time we see Dracula associated with any of these creatures. And it's with the wolves in Transylvania. First, of course, um, when he's... Uh, being the driver of the coach, right? And there's the wolves that come and surround the carriage that Jonathan is in. Now, that one's a little tricky because we theoretically don't know that it's Dracula yet, right? Until later on. Um, and so it's not until we hear him giving his, listen to them, the children of the night, what music they make, right? Um, even there, though, if we think to that particular moment, Jonathan hears the wolves crying out, and he finds it eerie and, and disturbing, right? we remember him being disturbed by howling before, right? His dreams were being disturbed by the howling of dogs. Um, the howling of the wolves is eerie. Remember the contrast between the mere howling of dogs and the howling of wolves, which like hits him on a more primal level, right? So the the fear, um, the, the, uh, the just sort of creepy factor of hearing the wolves howling in the distance, on the one hand, it just it plainly associates Dracula with them. So again, if we're ignorant readers and we don't know anything and we're just kind of slowly piecing out who this Dracula dude is and what on earth is going on, it gives us a pretty good imaginative hook, right, uh, to kind of attach him to. Um, so at the very least, that's definitely happening. Um, and uh, yeah, Mick, I agree, traditional studies of folklore would say uh, yes, exactly. The, the, these are the animals. These are bad animals, right? Traditionally, they're associated with uh, uh, with with creepy things. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. So, but I do agree, Tomas, as well. If we're thinking scientifically or theologically, I agree. I think we're missing the point. Either way. Um, yeah. Um, Carita asks if armadillos are good or evil. Clearly good, Carita, because they're from Texas, and therefore good. Um, uh, and probably very manly, I would think. Um, so, okay. Um, uh, the Blue for Lady asks again uh, a, a new topic. Uh, have you ever noticed all the high-tech gadgets they have? The phonograph, the typewriter, the Kodak camera, Winchester repeating rifles. I love the fine mixture of modern up-to-day stuff with the ancient holy objects like wafers and crucifixes. Uh, any thoughts about this juxtaposition of ancient and modern things? Uh, yeah, and you're right, uh, Ms. Blufer Lady, that we, um, we see that from the beginning. Remember that passage we've talked about before uh, where Jonathan talks about being, you know, it's, uh, it's 19th century up-to-date with a vengeance, right? Um, that juxtaposition of the ancient and the modern is a is a you know a motif from the beginning, um, but I do think that it's important 
as the story goes on, it, it uh, especially as they begin to speak sort of more slightingly of the modern world, or I should say perhaps more fairly, acknowledging the blind spots of the modern world, right? That modern people would not really get it, right? They would not really, um, they wouldn't believe anything of this stuff that's going on. Um, and they keep looking back at the wisdom of the old world. And so, you know, it turns out that the, uh, the naive, peasant-like old world has been displaced uh, by the far more learned, sophisticated, intelligent, and advanced modern world, right? That's the, the image just like Jonathan and the peasants in chapter one. But we come to see, just like with Jonathan and the peasants, that in fact it's always the peasants that know best. And it's, you know, these uh, ancient witch and demon cures that Van Helsing is researching that in fact come most useful uh, in the end. Um, but, Ms. Bluefer Lady, you make a really important point, which I think is a, is a deliberate one. It's not that the modern world is awful, right? We do see an integration. They don't leave the modern world behind. I think it's, um, you could make the argument that their sort of attachment to these modern day, and, and I, I would add to your list the uh, steam launch, right? That they uh, that they chase the 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 barge up the Bistritza uh, and the and the Serret, right? Um, and that's um, that, that another modern up to date thing. Um, so so yeah, so I think that they we 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 definitely. Um, uh, we definitely can see that they're not just abandoning the modern world. They're not trying to say, uh, ultimately, this is not merely a, a sort of a totally retrospective or a you know um, uh, just 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 luddite resistant to, to to modern things kind of story. Um, so uh, so yeah yeah um, okay. Keep going. All right. Mike M., this is another Twitter question. I always wondered why the Count flees England. The main characters opposing him are not political powers. Yes, they destroy the boxes of Earth, but the Count seems like he was too good a planner not to have a secret stash. Is his fall in the end arrogance or naivete? In Transylvania, he was both a political power and a supernatural power. So um, Mike is, was especially interested in thinking, uh, looking at that relationship. Um, it's like, why doesn't he fight them? It doesn't even just have to fight them physically, right? Why doesn't he like try to contrive to get them arrested? Or because they're breaking the law, right? Um, why is it that he's so spooked? Why does he run um, when he's opposed by, you know, this sort of small group of marginal people? Um, it's a really good question. First of all, uh, a couple things. Yes, he has political power, but not in England. And remember that's something that he himself is painfully aware of at the beginning, right? Here I am master, I am boyar, right? Um, and he does not wish that anyone in England should be master over him, right? But the, the foreigner, you know, is someone you know not of, right? And so you care not for. Um, the fact is he does not have the status, he does not have status in England. In England he's just a foreigner. Remember even, uh, you can see this, in uh, um, you can see this in the interaction between Jonathan Harker and the priggish, stuck-up solicitor from Mitchell Sons and Candy, who were um, involved in the sale of the house in Piccadilly to Dracula. Right um, when 
pushed to, are they going to protect the privacy of their foreign client? Or are they going to suck up to the English peer, that is Arthur, Lord Godalming, their decision is made in a heartbeat, right? No questions. He's going to go with Lord Godalming over, um, uh, over the foreign gentleman, as he's called. Um, he's he's not distinguished with any social rank or any. Um, he's not even he's not even really given a given a title. He's not he's not given the um, the respect due to a titled person, um, really by anybody. In uh, in England, so you know his political power at home, notwithstanding, it's clear that he does not have standing in England. And uh, if it's a question of political power, no, the main characters opposing him aren't political powers, except actually Arthur kind of is. I mean, he's a peer. That's really a big deal, actually. As Philip says, Arthur has clout. He's got a ton of clout. Um, not just. I mean, I. I mean, we want to talk about political power, Arthur is certainly a member of the House of Lords, right, in Parliament. Um, he would have to be. So, I think we're not actually told what his actual rank is, are we? I mean, like whether he's a duke or... Anyway, whatever. Point is, he clearly has not only the authority that extreme wealth gives you, but also a political power. So, um, I... Uh, I, I, I think that even for a canny planner, he would, uh, I mean, the more canny he is, the more he would recognize. Arthur's actually kind of the greatest threat to him. Um, the team that has been assembled by Providence, right, the team that has been assembled that is fighting against him is actually really well equipped, right? They have, uh, they have... Dr. Seward and Dr. Van Helsing, right? They have these medical psychiatric experts. Um, uh, they have uh, Arthur with all of his wealth and his political power and influence, and they have a Texan with lots of guns. So he's toast, right? Uh, I mean, he, 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 he's up against the dream team, plus Mina, right? And her sidekick husband. So, um, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's... I think he's pretty... He's he's kind of right to think that uh, you know the uh, game is up there. Um, it is the Victorian Avengers, Tony. Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, yes, what a stroke of good luck that Arthur's dad died when he did, Philip. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And how Arthur inherits like everything, right? The entire Western fortune as well as his father's fortune and title. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Okay, uh, uh, good. Tony, you had asked a question on Twitter about the role of social class, especially with regards to Dracula's choice of victims, middle and upper class. Also, I always found it odd that Harker would refer to Dracula as Count instead of My Lord, uh, as he would have done in England. Yeah, that last one is a really telling one, right? Again, in that whole foreigner thing. Um, no, if, uh, if Jonathan were speaking with an Englishman of that rank. He wouldn't call him Count, right? And it would be like going up to a duke and being like, hey, duke, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> you would not address a duke as duke. Um, uh, uh, you would address him as, I think, your grace, if I'm remembering my protocol correctly. Uh, 
but um, anyway, y you certainly wouldn't address him as Duke. So I actually, I, I do suspect that that sort of shows that by calling him Count, Jonathan is acknowledging his foreign rank, right? Um, you know, it's not like he's ignoring, it's, it's not like he's calling him Mr. Remember Van Helsing emphasizing that, right? When he's first meeting Arthur, it's right after Arthur's dad has died. So he starts calling him Lord Godalming, because that's his title, right? That's how you should address him, Lord Godalming or my lord. Um, and Arthur's like, oh, for God's sake, not that, right? Because, of course, his father just reminds him that his father's dead. Um, and so Van Helsing actually says, well, I was in doubt. He says, I must not call you Mr. Right? He used to be, before his father died, he was Mr. Homewood, Mr. Arthur Homewood. It was his only title. Um, but now his father's dead, and so he's now Lord Godalming. Um, Jonathan isn't, it would be an insult to call him, like, Mr. Dracula, right? Um, uh, or just Dracula, or something like that. So he calls him Count. It acknowledges his rank, but he's not using a formal honorific. Um, uh, so, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, so anyway, but that's the, the second and lesser question, uh, or lesser part of Tony's question here. Uh, the first part uh, is the really interesting one. We could talk about the role of social class, especially with regard to Dracula's choice of victims. Yeah, he does seem to go after money, at least, uh, if not class. And I... It's hard for me to resist a purely... <laughs> at least a partially physiological explanation for this. Remember those references when Arthur does the 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 blood donation, right? When he does the transfusion and Van Helsing is raving about how pure his blood is, right? Oh, his he is of uh, blood so pure uh, that we need not defibrinate it, right? Um, and the implication seems to be since Arthur is an aristocrat, right? Since he's, he's blue-blooded, um, he's fine. Right, his blood is actually of a different, of, of a, like, medically, demonstrably different quality than the blood of lesser, socially lesser people. Which means I can't help but wonder, would, um, would vampires, like, distinguish? I mean, would they, I mean, it seems so banal to be like, oh, they just, they taste better, right? Much tastier, right? The, oh, I mean, like the, the aftertaste from a peasant. I mean, oh, but I mean, it probably took Dracula weeks uh, to get the taste of those sailors out of his mouth, right? Um, uh, it's, I, I <laughs> Nancy says that's the good stuff. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, I, it's, on the one hand, that's the kind of reading that I'm really resistant to. I mean, I was kind of I was I was teasing my former students for answering my question why does Lucy go after children with answers like because children are easier to catch right and this seems like exactly that kind of answer to that kind of question um, so I, I, I'm resistant in going too far with it but again with the emphasis on the blood on Arthur's blood I, I have a hard time totally avoiding it um, but I don't think that can be in any case I don't think that could be the entire answer um, I, in part, I suspect it's just snobbery. Like, Dracula's fighting what he... He is obviously very interested in social level. Um, he is very proud of his rank as a boyar. And I don't... I mean, I. it seems just that he would consider, you know, 
going to England and hanging out in the streets of London and, you know, capturing cockneys in back alleys as just being beneath him socially, right? What's he going to... He's going to go for, you know, socialites and aristocrats because, hey, he's a boyar, right? So that to me, that seems to say... Um, less about sort of spiritual status or something of, of social class or something like that and more about Dracula's own character or outlook um, anyway yeah now Tony you're right Lucy does feed on urchin kids right um, and I think that that in itself is kind of interesting right it suggests see with Lucy it seems to be about children it's important that they be children it's not important where the children come from right um, uh, not to mention the fact let's um, let's not forget that um, let's not forget that Lucy is not Arthur's marrying down um, the um, the Westonras are wealthy but not titled they're not aristocrats um, they're like uh, uh, Mr. Darcy's family in Pride and Prejudice, right? Wealthy, landed gentry, but not aristocrats. Um, no titles. Uh, so that that so that's Lucy. So she's in uh, in biting urchin kids. She's not going below her class in the same way that Dracula would be. Now Jennifer points out very appropriately that. Um, the victims in Dracula's victims in Transylvania are of the lower classes, like the woman who comes looking the the poor mother of the baby in the bag, right when she comes and shows up and is and is uh, is begging for her child. Um, an act of condescension, Tom. I agree. See, I would say Jennifer. Well, it's different in Transylvania, right? He should have this kind of a relationship with. It's like. Hey, it's like just like the marital relationship is warped and twisted and perverted, and the uh, parent-child relationship is twisted. So is the lord and vassal relationship twisted and perverted, right? So just as the the peasants are supposed to uh, support, um, you know, and sort of give their lives to support uh, their lords within the feudal system, so literally they are, right? That that all seems to work. I like that. I like that. Um, uh, any, okay, all right. Let me go on because we're almost out of time and I'm getting towards the end of questions. Okay, two more, two more. Uh, Kimber says, I was really struck by how different the writing and perspective felt in the scene where Dracula's killing was described. Felt like a, a, a helicopter distance view of the scene rather than from a close direct participant. Is the writing stylistically actually different? Why? If not, maybe it's just literally the perspective of the narrating writer watching from above the scene. That's true. Mina's up on a rock and off to the side, so she is physically above and looking down. But, um... But it's not just that. I think one of the things... This is actually a fascinating moment in the story, Kimber. I think you're right that from a, from a, uh, you know, a narrative perspective, this is an interesting moment because it's Mina, of course, writing this, and she is not an actor in the event. She's an observer by force because she can't participate. She's behind the the sacred circle that Van Helsing has made to keep Dracula away from her um, 
but I mean, she can't get out either, right? Until the until the end, after Dracula dies. Um, so that scene is described. So she is an observer, physically separated from the scene. And if you think about it, that's actually very unusual. Um, all of the narratives, all the narrators have been first-person narrators, and they have almost always, as as uh, Bram Stoker, the compiler, boasts in that epigraph at the beginning of the book, right? You know how these papers have been set in order uh, shall be made manifest uh, in the reading of them, right? That passage from the very beginning. He talks about everything being, you know, from within the point of view and the scope of knowledge of the of the first uh, the first hand witnesses. Most of the stuff, the stuff that Dr. Seward talks about, the stuff that that uh, Jonathan Harker talks about, the stuff that Mina talks about, the stuff that Lucy talks about in her letters, all of these things are about things that they did or thought or heard. Um, rarely is the narrator, any of our narrators, merely describing something that they sat and observed from afar, right? That they merely perceived. Usually they are at least a passive, passively in, engaged in what's going on um, in the scene that they're describing. So, Kimber, I do think that there is a, di a difference in that way, and it's, it is, I think, conspicuous that that comes at this climactic moment, right? Um, but I also think it's, it seems to me to fit um, sort of thematically with what's going on with Mina there, right? Mina is distant from this. She was, like, getting too close to the vampire story. She couldn't even type the word vampire, had a hard time typing the word vampire, and then she couldn't talk at all, right? She couldn't write about it at all. She, 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 was, she was off her typing, right, um, uh, for the last couple days. Now she can talk again because she's writing this from the vantage point of after Dracula's death, um, but her description there is still distant. She's not a part of the scene, and it's only when she... It, it changes, right? I mean, I think, anyway, it changes sort of back when she rushes forward, and now she's part of this story again. Um, so to me, that all seems to kind of uh, kind of fit. Um, one last question I'm going to try, which I was not going to, I'm going to try not to spend too much time on anyway, uh, because it's only going to be of any interest to a subset of you, but I am a member of that subset, so I'm unashamedly going to talk about it. Trevor, I wanted to ask about uh, the connections between Dracula and uh, Jim Butcher's Dresden Files. Indulge me. One of the things that I quite enjoyed uh, reading Jim Butcher's Dresden Files was his inclusion of Dracula, of its kind of being a how-to guide on killing members of the Black Court. Very briefly, there are three different kinds of vampires, black court, red court, and white court. I won't get into it. Uh, within the world of uh, uh, Jim Butcher's uh, Dresden Files, the black court are Dracula. Like Dracula is like that. And in fact, within the, the fictional frame of the Dresden Files, Bram Stoker was actually like he was fed this information, uh, and the book was published by the White Council of Wizards uh, in order to uh, uh, help to exterminate the Black Court of Vampires. So it was put together as a, as a, as a comprehensive how-to guide on the destruction of vampires, um, which I thought was... which I, I, I also, uh, Trevor, uh, loved that element uh, of, uh, of the fictional world of, 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 of Butcher, of the Dresden Files, uh, when reading that. So, okay. Yet now, after reading Dracula, I find that while I still like its inclusion in the series, in some ways it doesn't work so well. The Christ versus Antichrist dichotomy that has been at the heart of the last few weeks is completely missing. Uh, absolutely agree. 
a much more generic faith seems to be involved. Butcher does some interesting things with this, and I quite like its role in the series, but it also lacks nuance. Completely agree with that. Um, I, within, and this is something that you see, and this is something we'll come back to when we look at the films. The question of how do you handle, when you're telling a vampire story, right, a post-Bram Stoker vampire story, how do you deal with the faith thing, right? Do you go closer to Bram Stoker and you make it all about the crucifixes and stuff? Very few people do anything with communion wafers later on. I suspect because communion wafers don't look like much on, f on screen, right? Um, it's one thing to say, I held out the holy wafer towards him and he went back. But if you actually have somebody on screen, you're barely going to see anything in there. It's tiny, right? It's going to be people like holding up their hand. Anyway, you know, a big chunky wooden cross or crucifix, um, uh, you know, like the kind they always use in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, is going to be more visually effective on screen, right? Um, but anyway, how you handle the whole faith thing, um, and Christian things specifically, you know, the, the Christian symbols is a big question in vampire, later vampire adaptation. Uh, now Trevor is right, uh, Jim Butcher, I, 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 lacks nuance is exactly what I would say also, Trevor. Um, he incorporates the faith thing, but he divorces it from Christianity entirely. It's not about Christianity, it's not about crosses, it's not about the body of Jesus, it's about faith, okay? And that but the, there's a there's a lot of vagueness about how this it doesn't matter what you have faith in and the power of your faith when it's being exerted in some kind of way there still is like a symbol involved right but uh like uh so when when uh Harry Dresden the protagonist shows the symbol of his faith which is his faith in his own magic so it's the it's the magical pentagram symbol that he wears around his neck that he uses as sort of his holy symbol to kind of repel vampires um, so that, that that has that effect he, he uses it uh, on multiple occasions against vampires of several different courts uh, uh, all three actually at very at one time or another um, uh, well red and black at least but I agree with Trevor he you know sto uh, Butcher tries to keep that element, but to separate it, he, he, he tries to separate it fairly far from the explicitly Christian spiritual language of Dracula. And, um, you know, I agree that it doesn't work, so at least I find it much, much less satisfying um, than the way that Bram Stoker is really building explicitly all that biblical language in it. It just it holds together, much, especially with the way that, you know, the vampire is like the perverted reversal of Jesus and salvation and resurrection. It, it all works so, so well and holds together so tightly uh, in, uh, in Stoker that I really miss it in, um, in, 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 in Butcher and, and, and other places. Um, but anyway, and then there's uh, Renfield. Uh, while reading a few weeks back, I found myself wondering aloud what Renfield was up to. A fiend, pa a, f a friend, I assume you mean, not fiendish laughter like from the abyss. Uh, a friend passing by who had read Dresden but had not read Dracula and knew uh, that I was commented on how Renfield was just a thrall. Yeah, Renfield, in fact, becomes within the, the Dresden world a generic term for someone who has been thoroughly, completely mentally dominated. Like, their their mind has been shattered and overridden by the mental force of a, of a, of a vampire of the Black Court. And so they're just, like, basically uh, not essentially automata or, you know, just they're, they're completely insane. Um, irrevocably 
Uh, and they're just, they're, they're thralls. They're just uh, complete mental slaves uh, of the vampire. Um, uh, Trevor says, I see how Butcher gets there. And again, I like that he's doing something with Dracula, and yet I can't help wishing he'd done more, gone a little deeper. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Trevor, my only... Again, it's not that I object to him doing something different. Like, it's fine. Like, it's cool. Right? You're writing your own story. You can do your own thing. I'm okay with that. What I dislike is when... I mean, in the book, uh, Trevor, that we're both referring to, um, uh, which is White Knight, book nine of the Dresden Files, um, which is the one in which... Uh, Harry has the big fight with the black horde vampire. Um, and it's where Renfields are introduced. Um, when Harry asks what a Renfield is, uh, Bob, his magical advisor, uh, just tells him, well, haven't you read the book? And that is not a sufficient answer to that question, right? So the idea that... Um, the idea that what Butcher is doing is the same as the book. That's the thing, I, not just with Butcher, but with all adaptations. Um, I have, uh, you know, and I've explained this many times in other contexts, uh, I used to be, when I was in high school, a terrible uh, uh, purist and snob when it came to adaptations. I insisted that they get it exactly right, exactly like it is in the book, or else it's wrong. I was very firm about that kind of thing, and I used to get super annoyed at adaptations of books that I had read and all the things that they messed up from those books. Um, my own opinions have changed very greatly about that, and I have a, uh, what I hope is a much more liberal opinion about that kind of thing these days. However, um, I, uh, one thing that does still kind of annoy me is when an adaptation is doing its own thing, which is fine, but claiming to be taking the stuff directly from the book. Um, uh, that annoys me. Um, and so I, there, there are times when Butcher crosses that line, like with Renfield in particular, and it just makes me want to shout. In fact, I often do shout aloud to the audiobook that I'm listening to. Um, you know, no, if you read the book, you'll find that there's a heck of a lot more to Renfield than that he's merely the slave, you know, the dominated slave um, of, um, of, of Dracula, of the vampire. Um, we'll come back to some of these things. I saved this for last, not only because, again, it's I know it's only relevant to people who have read this particular series, but uh, but Trevor, I don't mind you bringing it up, because I have certainly have been thinking about uh, 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 Butcher's adaptation uh, when thinking through Dracula this time. But also because it's a good transition to thinking about adaptations and stories, because that's where we're headed next time. So, um... Next week, we will discuss your homework is to watch the Bela Lugosi version, the classic, iconic Dracula film, um, and we will, uh, which we'll be discussing next time, and we'll be looking at a whole new set of questions. So the questions that we want to come back to when we're looking at the films is not, again, do they get it right or do they get it wrong, but what kind of, what are, the, what are those stories interested in? Yes, like, you'll notice, doubtless you'll notice many changes, right? Um, and I'm not saying we shouldn't think about those or you shouldn't have an opinion about whether those changes are, are good or bad or whether they work well or whether they seem smart or silly. Um, we'll all have opinions about those kinds of things, but what I'm really interested in is uh, 
uh, is what is the effect of those changes, right? How is the story changed? What are the what are the what are the new stories that the films are telling interested in, and how do those interests compare with the interests of the book? So I'm going to want to be coming back to things like the essence of the na the nature of vampirism. What makes vampires vampires, and why are vampires scary? Why, why are they evil? To what extent are they evil? Right? You know, we looked at the way the book talks about that, and um, and how the book expresses those things, right? And the, the concepts and themes that the book seems to be dealing with through this whole concept of the undead and vampires. What are the movies doing? Are they doing anything similar? Um, if not, what direction are they going and what do we see about that? So uh, that's what I'm going to be interested in talking about next time. So I look forward to that. I'll be, uh, I, I plan to uh, prepare a bunch of clips for us to discuss. Of course, I can't put up quotations in the same way that I do, but instead I will be showing clips. Uh, so we'll be doing some fun, uh, uh, close reading of uh, some, uh, some scenes from uh, the Bela Lugosi Dracula. So I look forward to that next time. Happy viewing, and I look forward to seeing you guys next week. Thanks very much. Bye now. Thanks again for all your questions as well. Uh, great questions. I really appreciated those. So thanks. Bye.